Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. So this week and next, uh, I want to reflect on that passage, uh, that amazing hundred word uh, summary of, uh, of church life, where um, I'm going to make the case uh, Luke deliberately presents uh, four ideals of the dream church uh, that you find everywhere in the New Testament, but here they are crammed into just 100 words. Um, and I feel a little bit conflicted uh, about doing a little two-part series on the ideals of the church because um, I, I spent most of 2020 writing a very long book uh, that in part was about the bullies of church history. So I, uh, I, I preach this with a very keen awareness that the church hasn't always lived up to the ideals that we read about in that paragraph. Um, there have been despicable moments in third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth centuries, uh, even in the Reformation, uh, despicable moments where the bullies uh, have done things in the name of Christ. And I don't just mean, you know, the obvious ones that we can blame the Catholics for. Uh, you know, like, like the Crusades and the Inquisitions, right? That's the easy one. Um, I mean things like the anti-Semitism that arises in the third century and then influences uh, Europe in quite dramatic ways. I mean the uh, fourth century Christian rioting around the empire. Christians rioting. They pulled down major public buildings. On one occasion, they even murdered a very famous pagan philosopher named Hypatia. And of course, I mean the 21st century scandals around child sexual abuse. Uh, so uh, the bullies of church history are very real. And uh, the only thing I can remind myself of is that they are traitors to the ideals of Jesus, to the ideals uh, captured in, in this paragraph. Uh, there was a, a lovely uh, quotation I uh, came across from an essay Albert Einstein wrote about his opinion of the war in 1915. He was asked to write about German nationalism and, and what he thought. And it's just a three-page essay, but it concludes with these words. Yet why so many words when I can say it all in a single sentence, and indeed in a sentence that is most apt for me as a Jew, honour your master, Jesus Christ, not only with words and songs, but rather foremost through your deeds. I love it because here's the smartest man in the world uh, saying the problem with bully Christianity is its departure from Christianity from the ideals of Jesus, from the ideals described here in um, Acts chapter 2. Now, I fully accept the hermeneutical problem. I hope all the New Testament students have gone, oh, I remember we, we shouldn't make narrative prescriptive, right? And uh, I totally accept that you can't just, you know, go from a narrative paragraph like this and say, you know, it's a prescription for everything we need today. Okay, sure, 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 sure. I, I went to New Testament one as well. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but 
But there's a big overreaction to that amongst our set where you almost turn narrative into what happened to happen one day. And, and I put it to you that, that Luke deliberately in this hundred words is presenting it as a paradigm. It's the only full summary of church life in the book of Acts. It follows the very first sermon in Acts and it follows the very first um, reference to people being converted to Christianity. Yeah? So it does seem like it's an ideal, a kind of paradigm. So we've got stuff to learn from it. And apart from anything else, the ideals I'm going to reflect on, you can find everywhere in the New Testament, but here they are stuffed into 100 words. The first ideal doesn't sound very exciting, but it, it lit up the early church in quite profound ways, and I think uh, we've got something to learn, literally. They were students. They were students. Just regular Christians were students. The church uh, was founded upon a particular message and devoted itself to a curriculum. The particular message is the gospel. If we'd read from just before our classic paragraph, we would have seen Peter preaching the gospel for the first time. Right? He gets up and he preaches about the life, teachings, miracles, death, resurrection of Jesus for our forgiveness of sins. The gospel. And then we're told 3,000 were added. They believed 3,000 were added. And then Luke says, they, the 3,000, devoted themselves and so on. We get this um, lovely summary paragraph. So uh, my point is, the church is founded on the gospel, a particular message. So we are, by definition, every Christian is a student, just to kick off. All right? It's not about an encounter. It's about a message that you couldn't have made up, that you couldn't logically work out. You can't receive except by hearing a message laid out. We are committed students. But more than that, the very first thing Luke tells us about what the they did the 3,000 did, the very first thing he says, look at it, they, verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that's not just the gospel that they already heard. That's the apostolic deposit. That's the faith once delivered. That's all the teaching that we now have access to in the wider New Testament. And notice Luke places it first. It's the first thing he says about the ideal church. They devoted themselves, gave special attention to the apostles' teaching. And, and I believe it's first, uh, not necessarily because teaching is always the most important thing, but because everything flows from teaching. All the other ideals of prayer and fellowship and awe and giving to everyone who had need and praising God and all that, it all is nourished by the apostles' teaching. We don't know how to flourish or in what direction to flourish or what emphases we ought to have to flourish without the apostles' teaching. Words like teaching and learning and knowledge and insight and discernment are sacred words in Christianity. We are nerds. <laughs> We're meant to be committed to a particular curriculum. Even the word disciple you know, it doesn't mean devotee or adherent or worshipper. It is just the word for student. 
The ancient church took this super seriously. Did you know that if you had the good fortune or misfortune to be wanting to become a Christian in the year 200 in, uh, in Rome, uh, they said, oh, that'd, be, that'd be fine. There's just 144 hours of lessons you have to do over three years, and then we'll baptize you. There was a fast track down the road in the year 300 in Jerusalem. You could do it in 126 hours. Very generous. Problem is you had to do it all in Lent. Three hours a day, six days a week. In order to be baptized. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Now, I, I am not saying we should bring this back. <laughs> uh, but I... I, I you know, having read around this whole uh, catechism uh, thing in the, in the ancient church, um, I actually have a lot of sympathy for it because they had worked out that the empire was so pagan, it took a lot to help people rethink through the gospel and the apostles' teaching. And they'd worked out that unless people were deeply schooled, unless the average Christian was deeply schooled in the faith, they wouldn't survive persecution. By contrast, you will meet today Christians, maybe even theological students, who know more about their hobbies than the apostles' teaching. They can converse with more knowledge about the NFL, poker, beer making. I'm just thinking of some of my friends, right? Cooking, bird watching, surfing, than the Bible. This is a real problem. The early church were nerds, and it was fan-boomin-tastic. They were also family. Notice uh, what Luke says immediately after he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. He says, and to fellowship, koinonia, a great, almost untranslatable word in Greek because it's, it's got this broad range from sort of camaraderie, to family, to business partnership, togetherness. But let's go with fellowship. Um, and, and here, it, there's a definite article that for some reason isn't translated. Um, it is, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. So it's, a, it's meant to be a concrete thing. It, 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 Luke isn't just saying they, they felt really warm and fuzzy. No, they devoted themselves to the camaraderie, the partnership, the family. And one of the concrete things he um, tells us a little about is eating together. Did you notice that? Part of the, the fellowship is to the breaking of bread. See there in verse uh, 42, the breaking of bread. And then if you track down to verse 46, it's almost like he forgot to tell us that they broke bread because he then says, and they broke bread <laughs> in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere Hearts. So eating was part of the fellowship, part of this family experience. Um, I follow those who think the first reference to breaking bread is a reference to communion. Uh, the reason I think that is because there's a definite article that's not translated, again, for some reason. The breaking of the bread. Okay. Whereas in the second reference, it's not. It's just uh, breaking bread. Right? So I think, uh, I think that's, that's right. The first one is communion, the definite meal. Uh, but I think the second reference in verse 46 just means simple meals. They just liked each other. 
enough to say, come over and, you know, have some whatever they ate, you know, lentils and water. <laughs> they ate together in their homes. They shared, they shared life. Um, they imagined they were family. And this was a huge feature in early Christianity. Uh, some of you will know those famous letters of pagan Emperor Julian uh, complaining that Christians were taking over the Roman world. Yeah, And in one of them, he complains about all their eating together. <laughs> it's very cool. He goes, we must pay special attention to this point, and by this means, affect a cure of the advance of Christianity. The Galileans begin with their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence call it by many names, and the result is that they have led very many into their atheism. <laughs> they denied the Greek and Roman gods, and so they're atheists, right? That, that's, that's the idea. It was a big deal for the early Christians, a big part of expressing family, eating together. And I really worried about sort of modern church. I can certainly say this about Sydney. I suspect it's worse in Melbourne, only because I know you're greater Epicureans than the Sydney people, right? But a MasterChef mentality has crept into the church, where we're so convinced that a dinner party at, at my place has to be an extravaganza, that we hardly ever do it. Because it's such a burden to put on an extravaganza. Gone are the days where it was just, would you want to come over for soup and bread? You know, or spag bowl and magnum ice creams, right? It's a personal Dixon favourite. <laughs> we, we hardly do that because we don't think of meals as family. We think of them as performances. That's, that's, a, that's a terrible part of our secular culture that has crept right into the church. We're meant to be the eating and drinking together family. More than that, another concrete part of the sharing, the fellowship, is there in verse 44, they shared resources. And they didn't just eat together. If they found out someone was in need, look what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone, to anyone who had need. Okay, so clearly the early ch uh, church was basically communist. Okay, no. <laughs> This wasn't compulsory. If we were to track over to Act 16 and, and look at the life of Lydia, here's a wealthy woman with her own property and private wealth, and it's celebrated. Okay, so it's not, it's not, it's not communism, okay? Dixon didn't just say the early Christians were communists. They just were family. And, and just in the same way that if you found out a, a family member was in need, you would just move some of the family resources to help them. You just would. And the early church just thought like that. And it too became a massive part of what Christians did in the ancient world. I mean, if we were to flip over to Acts chapter 6, they start this big food program. Remember? In the first year of Christianity, Acts 6, the, the, the daily food distribution is so big, the apostles decide, oh my goodness, we've got to appoint seven men to look after the food roster. And I love that it's seven men, right? Rather than just, you know, women look after the food, right? Which is so often what it is in my church anyway. Seven people had to look after the food roster. And uh, we can track this in the early church to Rome in the year uh, 250. We have a very good, cool little document that uh, explains that there are 1,500 poverty-stricken people in Rome who are fed by the church daily. Down in Curta uh, in the year 303, so the great persecution has broken out. 
soldiers burst into the church at Kurta to steal the treasures of the church. And we have the transcript of the interview. We have it. It's extraordinary. And they did find the treasures of the church. They went down to the basement and found a poor uh, storehouse for the poor. And we actually have in the transcript listed, I quote, 82 dresses for women, 16 tunics for men, 13 pairs of shoes, uh, men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes, 19 peasant capes, 10 vats of oil and wine for the poor. Over in uh, Cappadocia, the very first public hospital was founded in the year 360 by uh, Basil the Great. And, and did you know by the 5th century, by canon law, bishops had to build hospitals in their diocese. That was the origin of Western hospitals, public hospitals. Canon law meant said bishops have to build hospitals. Um, one fun example I've seen in sort of modern times of this sharing resources is the relatively small church called the King Center. I mean, relatively small you know, compared to what you would imagine. It's not, it's not a mega church, it's just an evangelical church. Uh, I think it was only about 500 members when they, when they started this. Um, they approached their local government and said, um, can we go halves in building a community center for, for uh, um, the wider area? And um, the council went halves. The church have been running it for the last 20 years on behalf of the community, on behalf of the council, free of charge. And um, it's a sports center. They've got, um, a, they've got a, a cafe that actually rates really well on TripAdvisor. Um, disabilities ministries. Um, they have an arts and crafts, arts and craft uh, for the elderly. They have a food bank where um, I think three days a week, if you've got a, little, a note from your local GP, you can go and get free food, all provided by uh, the church. All of this flows from the gospel and from the apostles' teaching. We are students, founded on a particular message, devoted to a particular curriculum. We are family, sharing lives and resources with each other. And these are often set in tension with each other. One of those silly things the church does through history. You know, we bifurcate. You know, churches go left wing, other churches go right wing. Some churches become nerdy. Some churches become really into togetherness. But, but they're held together in, the, in this ideal. They were students and family, and there was no contradiction. I admit, I gravitate towards the educational components of church life. Okay? I, I, I could do that all day. And, but, but I mustn't. I need to be reminded that sharing meals, sharing resources is a key part of what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. But then there are others who are all into togetherness and church is just community and, and they shun the educational dimensions, catechism, schooling the church in the ways of Christ and the teaching of the apostles. And they're both mistakes. And I, you know, pray that we as people who are either in ministry or potentially going to be in ministry, will hold these two things in mind and keep them in this beautiful balance, students and family. 
And may you do in your church what needs to be done as you think about your local community to be a blessing either to help the church be better students or to help the church be better family. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word and by your spirit animate us to hear, to mark, learn, inwardly digest, that we might indeed, Lord, be students of the apostles' teaching, that we might be family. For we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.